I think the value of teamwork and diverse voices in that teamwork to drive value and innovation uh, is just so critical in a fast-moving industry like healthcare and, and med devices. So teamwork, diversity, and innovation all fit together. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. The healthcare world has gone digital one segment at a time, with medical device companies holding steady at the end of the parade. Despite a traditional medtech career, Hill Rom's John Grotelars has pushed his company to step out in front of the band. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shewitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. Very so good. David, here we are. It's week 10,000 of the coronavirus nightmare. Uh, every day yeah, is Wednesday, is. as far as I can tell. And <laughs> I'm wondering, what is your tip for keeping sane during this time? Yeah, well, um, first of all, uh, you know, work in progress. But um, I was thinking about this. I think I'm doing all right, um, you know, kind of harnessed. And um, I think it's a combination of I have been um, really disciplined about the daily exercise and been really good on my uh, low-carb uh, Verta stuff. Um, uh, helps having, you know, pretty busy with the uh, day job and the advising. Um, I really enjoyed also some of the virtual meetings, actually. I mean, you get sick of the Zoom, but the opportunity to participate in a Duke conference and things going on regularly in the department at Harvard and all sorts of stuff. So I actually really appreciate being able to, in a sense, more easily participate in things that are further away. And I would honestly say that I think one of the best parts now, they might disagree, but um, I've actually really been enjoying all the time with um, my three daughters, um, just doing all sorts of things or, you know, just like the extra extra time and just seeing them around so much. So mm-hmm. for me, it's been a real highlight. Um, my oldest in particular might definitely not agree, but uh, it's, I really, what about you, Lisa? Well, you're much deeper than I am. I would have said I'm uh, doing a lot of puzzles and drinking bourbon, but, you know. <laughs> um, so... Um, here we go. John Grolars learned to work with his hands on his family's vegetable farm, but he was more interested in using those hands to build motorcycles and mechanical devices. He followed his inclination first as an engineer in a GM plant in Flint, Michigan, for landing at Eli Lilly, where he started his medical device career. Today, John is CEO of Hillrom, a public Fortune 1000 medical device company that's navigating its way across the digital and data realm. And John, it is so great to have you here today. Great to be here with you, Lisa and David. We've been fortunate to have one of your board members, Nancy Schlichting, on our show. Nice to talk to you. I remember when we first met in 2018, you'd just taken the job at Hillrom, and we're already talking about the importance of the digital world even then. Uh, When did you guys switch your tagline, your company tagline, to advancing connected care? Yeah, that was about a little more than a year ago. Uh, You know, we launched a new website and launched advancing connected care as as our, really, our vision statement for the company going forward. That's super cool. I mean, it's very different than the average medical device company vision statement. And I realize you guys are far more complex than that at this point. Um, And I know you also grew up on a Canadian vegetable farm, which you're probably very proximate to right now. uh, And that is a very far cry from your current Chicago high-rise office. uh, Anyways, your normal high-rise office. Just like Zootopia. Yeah, right. Uh, What's it 
what was it about farming life that was not for you? You know, to be honest, the physical labor part of it and the absolutely not having control of the outcome, uh, mm. given the elements and uh, what Mother Nature brings year to year. You realize the irony of that statement right now in this moment I, in time, right? <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, so, you know, those were those were a couple of things that drove me. I mean, we, we grew up, on our, as we'll talk about, on our family farm, and it was my my family and my uncle's family, and all, all told there were 10, 10 kids on the farm that between the two families that uh, really, you know, day in, day out, their obligation was to come to the farm every day after school and on weekends and uh, support the farm first. So I, I found that early on, I found an outlet through sports to avoid coming, having to come back to, uh, to uh, the farm every day after school. So I joined as many sports as I could as a young kid to yeah. avoid to avoid that. So I guess I knew early on, even as a teenager that, you know, I was tr trying every tactic I could to avoid coming back to the farm every day and uh, working on weekends and through the summer. But yeah, uh, just a touch kind of a jock. You, you went off to engineering school. I did. I did. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, you, one thing you do on the farm is you, you're doing a lot of your hands and you're, you're, you're MacGyvering uh, a lot of things to uh, keep the equipment running and uh, you know, keep, keep the production, uh, a line moving forward, if you will. And uh, so I, I, I got pretty good with my hands and I became pretty handy with woodworking and, and uh, started a woodworking cabinetry business at a young age, um, which was again, another diversion away from working on the farm itself. Um, uh, but, you know, so that was a very enjoyable part of, you know, an interest of mine at a young age of being curious and building things and and having projects and naturally translate over to uh, engineering. It, it sounds like there's always such a um, uh, sort of dichotomy between the sort of perception of, of farm life. And I'm reading about this a lot lately in um, uh, this, this fascinating biography of um, LBJ's, you know, early, very early days, you know, growing up in the Texas Hill Country, um, you know, uh, among, you know, these farmers. And he, and like and they're just so furious because there's like they're like these city slickers, you know, attach all of their oh it's self sufficient it's romantic it's beautiful and they're like it sucked like it's just so I mean I mean it's kind of like you know you know uh, you know Robert Caro is you know talks to everybody and that's what they say was that your experience Yeah it's extremely hard work I mean uh, uh, you know, of all the ten children who grew up on this farm only one my brother stayed in it. Uh, and, and, and got back into it. And, and even now he's approaching 60. He, he can't, he can't wait to get out and, 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 uh, and, and exit and uh, be done with it. But it's, it's, it's a tough life. I mean, it's uh, and by the way, even with all the technology, I mean, I, you always see on TV, Oh, they're, you know, planting by drones and one person plowing, you know, managing fields of, you know, acreage, acres and acres. And it seems like it's all tech enabled when they, when you see, you know, sort of the best of the technology, but it sounds like the day-to-day -day isn't quite automated. Yeah, certainly. I grew up on a family farm that, that has become, you know, less and less common with large corporate farming, but um, you certainly learn the value of hard work. And I think that's the, the takeaway from a young age. You know, uh, you learn to have a variety of interests. You pursue your curiosities. You're a jack of all trades, but more importantly than anything, you learn hard work and you learn that you can't control all the variables. So you went off to college at a very interesting program at the General Motors Institute and were in Flint, was in Flint, Michigan, or were in Flint, Michigan, excuse me, uh, 
working with uh, engines and axles and, and things, uh, that must have been quite a change. What, what did you learn in that experience that prepared you for your later career? Yeah, um, a lot of things, really. Uh, I mean, I, I can recall, you know, the, the program very quickly was a, a co-op program. So you'd rotate every three months between school and work. And I worked at a General Motors plant, as you mentioned. One was an engine manufacturing plant. Another one was an axle manufacturing plant. And then ultimately, I graduated at a different manufacturing facility where I was an assembly line. Um, you know, but I can distinctly recall at the age of 19, maybe 20, of being in charge of a final assembly line uh, in an engine manufacturing, engine assembly plant, and uh, being thrust into a, a, a management supervision role at, at that young age in a unionized environment and um, had that job for three months. You know, one of the first assignments I was given by my then a supervisor was to finish the job she had started with termination of an employee who, uh, who had some bad habits, including uh, alcoholism and not showing up to work uh, on time or at all. So uh, that was one of those early experiences that you, you realize what, what uh, the environment is like in a, in a unionized environment and how it can be a challenging set of rules to work with and really the human side of you know working with people and managing a group of people uh, with the objective of building a high quality product every day uh, even though there's some monotony to it but the, the the ongoing quality control and management of variability and process around manufacturing output and and uh, and having tight process control and and good, you know, human factors as part of that overall, uh, you know, process was was a critical thing that I learned as well. So early on, I mean, you know, it's different now, I guess, but the auto industry, I know, was very resistant to change. It fought very hard against electronic cars and some of the, um, you know, robotics and things um, with some exceptions, but early on recognized the importance of designing for the customer. Um, are there more similarities and differences in healthcare or, or is it very different? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think the other thing that I, I guess you're making me recall now is, you know, at the time when I was working in the automotive industry, the, the Japanese were really um, doing a great job, doing a much better job than the American automotive industry with everything from automation to workforce management to importantly quality and, and, and meeting the needs of the customer. So I think having gone through uh, a period of time at, at in the you know General Motors and the American automotive industry in general that was going through a downturn, you know that voice of customer and staying ahead of the innovation and delivering what customers wanted in a, in a high quality, low cost uh, methodology or or product offering um, was became very transparent at a young age. Right, yeah, I was starting my career in a in an industry that was in decline um, because of some, you know, poor decisions along the way around you know, product, product quality and product offerings um, that, you know, when I had a chance to re-pivot my career, moving into something that was, uh, had, had, you know, better, a better growth dynamic to it and was more customer focused and outcomes focused uh, was what attracted me to medical. So I know you went off to business school at Columbia and came back to Eli Lilly, but really to Guidant, their spin out, medical device spin out. And, you know, that is a uh, kind of legendary group of folks that worked yeah, at Guidant oh at that time. 
Many of the alums from there became giants in the medical device industry. What was it about that crew that made it special? What, what was the magic secret sauce in that moment? That's a great question, Lisa. Yeah, um, you know, a lot of great people, first and foremost, really talented people who were passionate about driving better clinical outcomes and better healthcare. Um, then on top of that, really, you know, uh, forward looking around technology and the uh, wide range of technologies that could be used uh, across guidance portfolio to improve outcomes, primarily in cardiovascular surgery, but also minimally invasive surgery mm -hmm. uh, in the early days. And, and, and I had joined my uh, start with the, a minimally invasive surgery group at Guidant following a short stint at their corporate headquarters doing business development in Indianapolis um, and, and got a chance to work with some, you know, um, the original founders of this company that Guidant acquired called Origin Med Systems. And, uh, you know, it was just a special, really special thing because these, these worked very closely with three founders. Um, many of whom have gone on and done incredible things in the medical device industry, everything from intuitive robots to uh, robotic catheters to uh, minimally invasive cardiovascular devices. So working closely with a team of gifted entrepreneurs and visionaries like that, and working really closely in a product management marketing capacity, really hand in hand with the engineers doing the product development and the physicians then doing the testing of prototypes week in and week out was really a early and formative experience in, in, uh, in my career and something I really aspired to do because that's why I went back to get my MBA was to be really close to product development, be really close to innovation and um, really drive that innovation agenda for, for, the, for a company. What was your biggest value add to this process as you saw it? Yeah, um, really was translating the customer needs, whether they were spoken or unspoken, into what the device design uh, and device, um, you know, uh, outcomes needed to be, what the outputs of the device and, and the process around the device and procedure needed to be. I mean, we're working with surgeons developing surgical But personally, tools. like you personally, what did you feel like you're in that process you were very best at? Yeah, I think my sweet spot was that, that translation of uh, customer needs and inputs and listening um, and turning that into, you know, a problem statement um, and rallying a group of people around that problem statement to say, look, this is, this is what we're trying to solve for. Um, here are the constraints that we need to work with and, and then helping design, you know, um, uh, the, the optimal product for that. But I think it's interesting that you came from engineering and then you ultimately, you know, made your way to sales, right? And I think there's always a natural tension between these two organizations and technology companies, uh, or at least that's my experience. You know, the engineers think they can build the perfect beast and the salespeople think they can sell things that the technologies guys can't build and at least not on the same timeline they're talking about and there's always this sort of you know do we really need that feature and do we really need you know that level of perfection on the testing and all the rest and how, how have you navigated that yeah it's interesting when I, you know when you, when you phrase the question that way um on the one hand i don't i don't personally see the tension as much 
Um, but I know, I know what you're saying. And I know um, because I worked in a small organization where you had really close knit sales, marketing and engineering teams together. And that was the magic that we had mm-hmm. uh, in this part in this, in this business. It was small enough where you had that full breadth of scope and, and it wasn't so large and bureaucratic and, and functionalized that, that you uh, only saw a small portion of it. So we, I saw the full breadth of you know, start to finish in multiple cycles of product development. So what I think what I think uh, I learned because I, you know, I literally lived through three or four generations of the same product, and you really learn how how the simplicity and elegance is very difficult to define to do, to, to to actually do less <laughs> mm-hmm. and and have the discipline to say, no, we're not going to add these additional technical features to the product because um, it actually increases complexity versus reducing complexity. And it actually increases the variability of the outcome versus decreasing it. So, you know, it just, it just takes, uh, sometimes it takes a few iterations to get to that elegant simplicity that looks so intuitive when you see it, but it mm-hmm. sometimes takes a longer path to get there in development. I guess the other thing that stood out from what you were describing, John, was how in a lot of, I guess, startups, people become so in, uh, that one sees in health, um, people become so enamored of a particular technology that it's sort of, okay, well, here's our technology, what can we do with it? And your approach is, is really what some um, of these sort of innovation entrepreneurs, innovation gurus in a way, champion the role of, and, and I, I know Lisa and I have both you know, intensively advocated for this, really understanding the voice of the customer, of understand, that's kind of put a little formally, you know, trying to understand what the actual problem is, what getting out there and figuring out what is it that people really want. And I guess maybe an interesting aspect of that to ask you is, how do you see the balance between deeply understanding the problem that people want to have solved and the sort of Steve Jobs view of people don't even know what they want to have solved, and then you present them something that's so elegant and they didn't even realize that they were worried about it? How do you balance those? Yeah, I think there's a place for both of those, for sure. Um, You know, and, and... There's so often where um, a, a person knows uh, or they're in a routine, right? They're in a routine and they don't even recognize the, the problem that they're overcoming every day in that routine <laughs> um, in, in a medical environment or any, any kind of environment. But here we're obviously talking about medical devices. So, so it, it's really that observational. So I know you did this church. Just doing that observational research and, and just observing what what they're doing and and I guess you you kind of learn that in some of your engineering disciplines around industrial engineering and design engineering you're just observing what they're doing and why they're doing those things and you keep asking that question why and you 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 finally uncover that you know there's a problem that they're uh, either most times not able to articulate what why they're doing certain things so. Mm-hmm. So to ask you a why question, I know you, you went from Guidant to um, a, a small company, Ventrica, which was acquired by Medtronic, and then back to a large company, Boston Scientific, and you've been in large companies really ever since. Why are you a big company guy, not a little company guy? Yeah, that's a great, great question. question. Um, I still think of myself as a little company guy, really. <laughs> 
um, um, and, and, and certainly in the role I have, I get to feel that way because I, I get to see the, you know, the, the end to end of our, of our organization, our enterprise. So I get to feel that way. Uh-huh. And I like to see, I like to see progress move at small company speed um, and, and, and give people the autonomy and the, you know, the freedom to, to get their job done without, without too much bureaucracy. So, um, yeah, but my pivot, you know, I, look, I, I, I continue to want to do more and have a bigger impact. So moving to a larger company like Boston Scientific and the breadth and diversity of the company back then and even today, uh, it's gotten even more diverse. Um, it, it, there's just a tremendous amount of opportunity for innovation and to improve healthcare and improve outcomes for patients. So it was just, it was just a, a, a fantastic opportunity to, to play, um, I shouldn't say play, but to contribute uh, in, a, in a wide variety of clinical areas uh, that Boston Scientific, uh, you know, uh, was participating at the time. And, um, you know, again, it feeds that curiosity, it feeds that passion around improving healthcare. So you went from um, Boston Scientific, I think, to Bard. And, um, you know, having been at many of these different companies along the way, you went through many, many acquisitions. Um, and I know even at Hillrom, you've executed many, many acquisitions. What is that like? You know, what are the upsides and downsides of that consolidation culture? You know, and it's so prevalent in the healthcare world, especially now. Um, how does it help, you know, how does it impact a company for the, for the good and for the bad? Yeah, so this goes back, you know, even throughout my entire career, one thing I observed early on, even at working at Guidant and then this, this, this short stint at the startup company that did get acquired by, you know, Medtronic, another big medical device company, and then going to Bard, you know, the whole um, industry is is filled with a lot of early stage company acquisitions, right? And, and it's a big part of what drives value for shareholders and what drives value uh, for the healthcare system, um, and recognition that innovation happens in small companies, um, and innovation, uh, in order to scale it, in order to really uh, see its full potential, needs um, needs to typically partner with a larger entity to commercialize it and, and make it globally available. So, I mean, understanding that dynamic and, and recognizing that you're not going to as a bigger company uh, like Hillrom, you're not going to be able to innovate and develop everything on your own. You're going to need to look outside and, uh, and, and understand what you're looking for. It kind of goes back to that needs discussion we just had. Like, what is the problem you're trying to solve? What are the needs that the customer has? What can we do ourselves? And what are the solutions are out there um, that people are pursuing? Have you um, had an experience though through one of these acquisitions or mergers where it was like, you know, either inflating like wow this is you know a story you could tell us about how it made it better or a story you could tell us about how it was like ugh, deflating you know how did it how does it affect people because it definitely does right yeah yeah so on the uh, you know it certainly on the on the it typically affects people who are on the acquired side right on the uh it affects people more that way because they had something they were uh, on a mission uh around on a on a, on a quest to bring to market, they obviously made significant progress to get acquired, uh, and then their whole organization dynamic changes. So, have, having been on the other side of that uh, with Bard, 
was the first time that I was on the side of being acquired. Um, uh, when, when this, aside from this small company, Ventrica, which was really, um, you know, pretty simple integration of a technology once, once that was completed, not much of the organization stayed behind. Um, yeah, so to your question, it certainly has a, a much bigger impact if you're on the acquired side and having that culture fit becomes really important um, uh, in terms of the experience you're going to get as an employee and the rest of the organization is going to get. Uh, integrating into something larger um, or integrating into something maybe of equal size. Um, that cultural fit piece is really hard to assess and um, really critical for the personal journey that individuals will go on. What have you done to make it easier or I'm not sure what the right term is in this case, as you've bought up a bunch of companies at, at Hellrom and integrated them, how are you making those transitions good for both sides. What do you do for that? Yeah, this is where I think this, the small company mentality that I like to think I still have, um, uh, and preserving the culture of what you're acquiring, um, you know, is, is important to, first of all, understand, do you, do you, do you need to, uh, are you acquiring just a simple technology and it's going to become part of your portfolio and, and there's a, only a transitional need for the, typically very small organization that may have developed that. Um, that's pretty straightforward and, and more of a, a quick transition and handoff. If it's something more of scale and size, and you know you want to preserve the culture and the innovation that that company developed, uh, then preserving that culture and understanding it uh, and respecting it and elevating people from that organization into your organization um, and giving them a voice sometimes directly to the CEO uh, becomes even more critical. Mm -hmm. So um, it's really understanding what the value is that you're, why you did the acquisition to begin with. Is it just the product or is it also the people and the process and their innovation capability that you're uh, interested in, in sustaining? And if it's the latter, then, you know, keeping the organization together and, and respecting that culture and allowing it to thrive inside of a larger company and actually, infect other parts of the company that perhaps need to uh, or can benefit from that kind of uh, uh, cultural migration is uh, so, important you know, value. So a couple, a couple of questions on that. Do you have a real expectation um, when you acquire somebody that they're really going to stay, you know, more than like a year and a day or whatever it is? Um, and um, the idea that, um, uh, you know, versus is it kind of like your understanding that you know, a lot of people um, will leave. And I guess related to that, one of the ways that, again, there's always these tensions that you've described where you're saying, you know, a hope people have when they bring in startup is you don't just get the startup, but you get somehow the startup magic. On the other hand, the way a lot of large companies preserve, uh, notably not Facebook, but preserve the startup magic is by keeping the, like Zappos, right? Keeping it, as a totally separate entity doing its own thing and kind of keeping it away from the mothership so that it can continue with their spirit sort of like un, un, unaffected. But on the other hand, you want kind of that spirit. So how do you balance that? Yeah, it kind of goes back to the value proposition of the acquisition to start with, um, right? So if it's something small and simple, you, you know, you know, preserving that wasn't that important. If it's larger and more complex and you know you want to keep the, that culture 
um, then what you really want to, what we try to do is understand where where can the bigger company, Hillrom in this case, bring bring scale, bring value, um, and and accelerate the mission that the company was on, mm-hmm. and and where can where do we know we need to steer clear and avoid uh, messing things up, and uh, and 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 allow the magic to continue to happen. And and preserve it, celebrate it, and and uh, expand on it. So and, and I think that really comes to, down to the you know planning and the integration phase is understanding what those value drivers are, having real clarity around what the mission is and what the objectives are, and then once you have that well established and understood and there's alignment, you can you can move forward in a pretty productive fashion. So we talked a couple weeks ago to Madeline Bell, who's the CEO of uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, about uh, her first time as you know becoming CEO, which was at Chop. And I know this is your first CEO opportunity as well. And she told us, you know, it was a huge difference, even though she'd run most of the organization before, had huge PL responsibilities, et cetera. You know. What do you think? Was it a big change when you became the CEO versus, you know, running all the many organizations you had before? Yeah, that's, um, it was more of a change than I suspected. And I really felt I was ready. <laughs> I mean, I had spent almost 25 years in a variety of roles from sales to marketing to R&D to many general management roles. I spent, you know, eight years of my career with, with Boston Scientific in various international roles running different countries or regions. Um, and then, as you mentioned, I came back to BARD and worked in, you know, ran a, ran a pretty good sized business. Uh, and then actually a couple of businesses plus a region. So I felt I was really ready um, and, and had done a lot to prepare myself for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you actually get in the role and you realize um, that formally you're ready. But, you know, the intangibles of coming into a new role, in my case, not knowing a single person in the company mm-hmm. uh, prior to starting, right? Uh, it's remarkable that I spent 25 years of my career in medical devices. But when I came to Hillrom, I didn't know a, a single employee uh, that I had worked with before mm. um, and only met the board through the interview process. So um, with the exception of one person on our board. So it was it was once again, jumping into a situation where everybody's new. Um, I knew the portfolio and certainly studied it a lot. Um, but coming into that role for the first time and, and um, really having the management of the, the, the new things, for, the really new things were management of the board dynamics and management of investors. Well, those are the two new things where I had only limited experience. Does your sports background give you any, um, help here in terms of uh, captaining the team? Uh, I, you know, this, to me, the sports background, especially team sports, is the best analogy in business. Uh, I use it frequently, um, and, and I used it on my day one with my new management team, talking about how we were going to operate as a team, what our rules of engagement were going to be, um, how we wanted to make sure we were playing our positions, uh, but yet working as a team. Um, I use that very frequently and I can distinctly but you didn't pull the thing from the untouchables right with uh... <laughs> <laughs> pretty much yeah um, and and you know making sure that we all knew we had a, a, t- a 
uh, you know, a position to play and that what the outcomes were that we were striving to achieve. So uh, are you the coach or what's your role on the team? Yeah, I'd say probably a player coach um, is probably the best combination, but mostly a coach. Um, but there are times where, you know, of course, uh, if it's in an investor meeting or a board meeting or an all-employee meeting, I'm, I'm then moving into a player role uh, or if we're doing a business review and an operational review. But um, it's pretty heavily coaching um, and, and a good amount of playing as well. And is that hard to do when you've been the hands-on player? Is it hard to step into the coach role and, and let go? For me, no. I, no, I, I had a lot of practice with it, starting back uh, almost to the first supervision role I talked about when I was 20 years old. Right. Um, you know, you realize that, a, you know, young in your career, when you have a management role, there's only so much you can control. Mm-hmm. Um, and the vision, the values, the objectives – and making sure people are aligned on those important elements um, really help enable a broader organization to execute effectively. Just switching gears for just a minute, I want to talk about your efforts to digitize, you know, Hillrom turned it into really a connected care business. And, you know, this is not something that MedTech has done that gracefully yet. Um, I think even behind pharma in many ways. And, and I wonder how that's gone and what, how you find the balance between what you're known for doing med tech wise and where you think you should be going and how that not only affects you and your teams, but how does that get perceived by the industry? Yeah. Uh, well, this is how we first met, right, Lisa? I mean, uh, I started my, my, my job and as the new CEO and I was networking with experts like you and, and many others uh, trying to really shape what that future vision of Hillrom was going to be. And you know, a year later, roughly, is when we came up with that uh, vision statement of advancing connected care. And, and I think it was looking at you know our, our assets of products and and uh, customer relationships and how Hillrom is viewed uh, by our customers, and then looking at what the opportunities would be to take those assets and connect them in a way that's more meaningful. Uh, to address some real problems, right? So we looked at many different problems across healthcare, um, things from sepsis to other hospital-acquired infections or falls in the hospital environment or, or many other, um, you, know, uh, you know, outcomes that should be much better in, in, a, in an acute care or uh, ambulatory care environment. And thinking about, you know, how can we accelerate our innovation with, with digital and with information that's coming off of our devices to ingest that information, organize it, drive some analytical insight from it, and then communicate that back to caregivers so they can act earlier and act more efficiently with the insight of, of big data or analytics that could help them do their job more effectively to improve outcomes, to improve workflow, to improve productivity of healthcare. One, you know, one thing I think that all of us in healthcare realize is that there's a lot of waste. And uh, there's, there's the efficiency of the workflow is not uh, anywhere near what it could be and what you would expect it to be in a, in a you know, again, in a highly automated environment, like, like early in my career, I was talking about with General Motors. It's, it's, that variability is so dramatic 
uh, site to site and patient to patient, that if you can reduce that variability, you can really improve the, the cost and, and quality of outcomes. Do you think that um, there's anyone else in MedTech who's doing this well? Yeah, I think there's a handful of companies who are really embracing uh, digital and connectivity and connected care. Um, and you know, we, we looked a lot at those and studied what they were doing. I talked to the CEOs of those companies to learn from them and, and understand why they took that journey, uh, what led them that way. Are you thinking yeah. about bigger companies or smaller companies? Thinking about both. Um, you know, ResMed was one of the, was one of the smaller companies. It's yeah. now become a very big company. Um, you know, I think the imaging companies, whether it's Philips or Siemens or, or GE, I think they mm-hmm. were some of the early ones to see the importance of data, mostly with images, right, early on. And then mm-hmm. the importance of how that, how they can bring even more insight with uh, interpretation of those images, but otherwise, very few are doing it. Um, you know, and, and so that that was an appealing part that you know this could be a unique way for Hillrom to differentiate itself and bring real value uh, into the healthcare environment um, mm-hmm. through the the excellent relationships and trust that we had with with caregivers and physicians' offices around the world. So we're nearing the end of our time, but I do want to get in this last question, which is, you know, one that I, I very impressed by your commitment to diversity. Your management team is very gender diverse. Your board has four women on it. It's very unusual to see in public companies uh, or and especially in private companies. Um, you obviously care about this issue. Your wife is also an engineer. Um, so you value, I think, you know, women's ability and, and capability to, to be equal. I, I, why is that, where does that come from for you? You know, how, how did you come to that and, and why is this important to do? You know, it, it, it comes from a lot of places with me, everything from my mother and my father passing away at a young age and seeing the, what she had to go through, um, having three sisters out of our six siblings, um, my wife has an engineer, as you said, I have two daughters. Um, I've just seen throughout my career from a very young age, the, uh, the power of diverse teams, uh, of diverse thinking, whether that's women or whether that's, you know, uh, African-American or whether that's international uh, experiences that I've had. Um, and, and if you really wanna be driving innovation, you need to have a diverse set of voices um, into the input process. And, uh, and, and seeing the problem from different perspectives. And if you really want to have a powerful team, you got to have a diverse team. Like why would you exclude big parts of the population if you want to have the best team on the field? Mm-hmm. If you want to have the best team on the field, then you will be gender blind, race blind, religion blind, and you will seek the best talent to put the best talent on the field. Does that also extend to sort of viewpoint blind in a sense, or you know, to get a range of different perspectives into the conversation yeah absolutely yeah and uh, you know uh, i think you know being a part of so many different teams over over your my career um and like all of us you, you see the power of that diverse set of opinions and all of a sudden someone from a very different perspective will say something and it triggers this whole you know kind of awakening and and opening up of an innovation avenue that you never even thought of before so um you know having that that diverse set of voices helps us at the board level, helps us at the management team level, and really I think will help you know our company, the broader we can instill that into our organization, help us thrive in the future 
uh, when innovation is the is the name of the game and and the you know the future, you've got to have a diverse set of people in, in that voice. Well, John, with that, I'd I'd like to say thank you so much for being on the show today. That was a great conversation, and really um, excited to watch your uh, connected care advance. <laughs> All right, thank you so much, thank you, Lisa. Thank you, David. All right, take care. That was interesting. What an impressive guy. Yeah, he's a terrific guy and, and just so down to earth, I think. You know, I, I got the chance to meet him a couple of years ago and I just really admire him because I think he's very practical, but also very inspiring. Wow, well, how nice you had the opportunity to work with him and sort of get to know him in contact. I imagine that, would, that must have been a great experience. It's a very interesting organization because they've acquired a lot of companies, big and small, over the last couple of years. You know, starting with Welch Allen and as small as Volt, you know, and uh, they seem to be serious about this digital mission, or they are, I think they are serious about this digital mission, whereas I've seen a lot of other large med tech companies dabble and not really get there. So anyways, today's guest, John Grotelars, was speaking to us live from the Zoom alternative universe. And you can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech, at the Timmerman Report. Please remember to give us a review on iTunes if you like the show. And you can follow the inimitable Lisa Sunin and her writing at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with his parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in quarantine. Be well. Goodbye from the Zoom. <laughs>